0: And brand citizenship is very much, the five-step model is very much not just about communications in that way of advertising, marketing campaigns, digital communities. It's very much a conversation in terms of full behavior of an organization, how a company behaves in every single action. And I think very much, I know as someone who goes to doctors periodically, Your response is very much based on the action of the physician, not just his
1: words. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you.
2: Well, welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again this week. Today, I'm very honored to have Ann Barr Thompson as our guest today. Ann is the author of the book, Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Purpose and Profit. A Trust Across America 2018 Top Thought Leader and a 2020 Superbrands Top 10 Branding Leader, Ann Barr Thompson has been using the brand as a motivating force for change, relationship building, and profitable growth for more than 25 years. A former executive director of strategy and planning and the head of consulting at Interbrand, the world's leading brand consultancy, and is the founder of 164th, a strategic and creative consultancy that helps integrate purpose and social responsibility into brands, business strategy, and corporate culture, and brings the knowledge and understanding that only comes from interacting with a lengthy list of the world's most prestigious brands. Anne is the author of Do Good, as I said before, Embracing Brand Citizenship to Fuel Both Purpose and Profit. Her pioneering model of brand citizenship, which we'll be talking about today, is a win-win-win solution, mutually beneficial to people, society, and the bottom line. Anne's writings have been published in top industry publications. She's been interviewed on numerous podcasts, radio shows, and Fox Business, and spoken to business schools, conferences internationally, and the UN but nothing as prestigious as this podcast. Anne holds an MBA from the Darden School of Business at UVA and has been an adjunct professor at NYU Stern School of Business's London campus. Anne, welcome. I know you're incredibly busy and I'm very honored to have you take some time out to talk to my audience today. How are you today? I'm well
0: and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So that's quite an introduction and you've built up quite a resume. So I'm really excited that my audience is going to get to learn all about brand citizenship and what you do because I think it's fascinating. I read your book a few months ago and I thought it was incredible. I couldn't put it down because I really like all the kind of stuff that you talk about. So I want to get to the book. But first, as I usually start off all my podcasts with, I just would like my audience to get to know Ann Barr Thompson and who you are. So please tell the audience a little bit about yourself, about your book and how you came to found 164th Consulting?
0: Well, I'll put myself in the context of my book, since that's why we're here today. And I think what's important is I never set out to write a book or even create a model for citizenship or purpose or sustainability, whatever you'd like to call it in today's world. And what happened is very much exhibits who I am. I didn't set out to do this, as I said, but I actually followed the signs. I have a friend in the UK who calls it Cosmic Breadcrumbs, and I followed the Cosmic Breadcrumbs over the course of a seven-year period, effectively, which culminated in the book being published. The book is a result, and my investigations into brand citizenship, which actually didn't start out as brand citizenship, it started out more as business leadership, is a result of my being curious, my interest in understanding how cultural sentiment constantly shifts and moves forward. And my ability to connect the dots and relate seemingly discrete things in ways other people haven't related
2: them. Tell us a little bit more about how you define brand citizenship, because many people out there might not know what it is, and then we can move from there.
0: So technically, brand citizenship is a five-step model that runs across something I've called the Me to E continuum. And I suspect we'll talk a little bit more about both those things, the five
2: Absolutely. steps. Absolutely. We'll talk about the five steps. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think what's interesting is to deconstruct the phrase brand citizenship to actually understand what it is. So technically, as I said, it's a five-step model. But if you think of what a brand is, and there's definitions about perceptions and how people view things, et cetera, but really the brand is a human face of a business. It's the things we relate to as people, as employees, as customers, as other stakeholders. The brand is the human face. It's the thing that causes you to have a relationship with the company in a certain manner. So if you take brand as the human face of the business, and then you take the word citizenship, which is about being an active participant in society, brand citizenship beyond that five step model on a technical level is very much about businesses being active participants in society and taking a role as a citizen would.
2: So many of my audience, and I think when we spoke last month and you had that kind of same question, I I looked at your face and I think you were asking the same question my audience is asking right now. The name of this podcast is called Difficult Conversations. And I think when I was reading your face, you were kind of had this little look like, what does brand citizenship have to do with podcasts and how are we going to relate this? But, you know, the premise of this podcast is that all types of conversations that we have during our time are really important, especially during those critical times in our lives. But the other part of difficult conversations is that there's conversations that we have with ourselves. There's conversations that we have with others and that we're not even aware of. And if we can learn about these conversations and learn about how we communicate, that we'll be better off to navigate through our professional lives and our personal lives. And as I read your book, I thought, This is really a type of conversation that companies and businesses are having with their consumers and the public, correct? And I think that's how I think of this, as you're really trying to communicate with us. And isn't that what you're teaching when you're discussing brand citizenship?
0: I would say it's about communications and it's about actions and aligning your words with your actions. So I started out my life in university undergraduate as a biochemistry major and One day I woke up and I was looking at this book by Desmond Morris called Man Watching. And it was compelling me and it was pulling me in. And I actually started thinking, wow, this is more interesting to me. And I was in a special molecular bio program at the time that there were a lot of people from China and India and their livelihoods and their lives actually depended on doing well in this program. And they would sabotage experiments sometimes in lab notes in the library. And I really was getting tired of all that. And I wanted to learn more about people and the way people interact. And this book by Desmond Morris, Man Watching, pulled me in. And that's what drove me to go to communications. And in many ways, the combination of biochemistry and communications makes me a natural anthropologist. And the first thing I learned in communications in my very first lecture was things are not linear. Mm -hmm. You know, you say something, you have a body movement, you have an action it causes a reaction. You respond to how someone else is behaving in the same way you were saying you saw my face and so you wanted to answer that question. You were responding to an action, not necessarily a word. So I think what's important to note is that conversations are not only the words we have, they extend into the actions we have. And whether you're a physician having a conversation with a patient or whether you're a business having a conversation with a customer, with an employee, with a supplier, with an investor, with any range of stakeholders, what you say and how you behave both creates that conversation. And brand citizenship is very much, the five-step model is very much not just about communications in that way of advertising, marketing campaigns, digital communities it's very much a conversation in terms of full behavior of an organization how a company behaves in every single action and i think very much i know as someone who goes to doctors periodically your response is very much and based on the action of the physician not just his words and i think those two things relate very much I think the other thing that's very important to note, and I should have probably said this before, is that I never set out to write a book, but I never set out to create this model either. What happened was, is I was researching for, to come up with trends at the end of 2011. So five trends for 2012 to go out and market my business and have conversations with clients and potential clients. And in the course of this research, two findings emerged that piqued my curiosity and led me down this pathway to deconstruct brand leadership from good citizenship and favorite brands. So this model makes so much sense and resonated so much with you and others who read the book because it's built from the grassroots up. It wasn't that I was in a corporate boardroom, in a classroom, or even... At home, having a glass of wine and saying, I want to come up with a model for purpose or citizenship because I think that's where the world is going. Actually, this was in advance of that being highlighted and spotlighted. And people were calling for this. So the model makes sense because it's five steps that were built from the grassroots up. And I think that's very important in relationships too. Having empathy and listening to the people who are your audience, not creating something always in a vacuum.
2: And that'll lead us beautifully to the five steps. Just this week, we're recording this on November, 4th. what's today's date, <laughs> November fourth, day after, after the election, election? which we'll talk you about. Even
0: get that date.
2: <laughs> Just yesterday, we went live with my interview with Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote the famous book, The Speed of Trust, and we had a great conversation. I encourage everyone to take a listen to that. And now, this is through like our eighteenth or twentieth recorded episode, maybe more. And one of the things that keeps coming up every single week, whether I'm speaking to people in business, whether I'm speaking to patients or doctors or people in healthcare, is the word trust Mm -hmm. and trust is the beginning of everything, whether it's a marriage, a doctor patient relationship and how you establish that trust. I really love the way you said it really is not what you said, but it's how you say that, because that's my whole life. And I mean, that's what I teach. I go through hospitals and train doctors and nurses and try to explain to them, it's not that you didn't say the correct words. It's that for some reason, there was something on your face, something how you said it, something in your phrase, your tone, inflection, that the patient looked at you and didn't trust you. And it doesn't matter. I mean, in medicine, I teach one simple thing. Doctors should never use the word think. You really don't want a doctor who says, I think that you have that. No, that just means you're stupid. And so. We say, when I train them, I say, of course, you don't always know. We don't always know everything. But if you find the mass or an abnormal picture on x-ray and it looks like cancer, don't say, I think it might be cancer. Say, I'm concerned or I'm worried that this might be a cancer and that we need to work this up further. And by changing that one word, you've really bought into that trust. You went from a doctor who's stupid, doesn't know anything, he just thinks, to a doctor who really cares. And so that leads us up into our five steps because here it is again. And the first step is trust, right? So can you tell us more about that?
0: And before I I jump into that, I do want to say one thing in reaction or in response, I should say not reaction Mm -hmm. in in response, we're having a circular (laughs) conversation here now representing communication to what you said is that it's having a point of view, I think doesn't represent a point of view but I worry has a point of view. And people are looking for leadership everywhere and they're looking for guidance. And having a point of view is essential. And trust begins with living up to your point of view. If you think of the word purpose, which is a big loaded word at the moment in business, purpose is something that is the highest order reason why your business exists. It's the raison d'etre in French, you know, it's this highest order reason, but it has to be tied to what your business is about and your industry. It's not a social mission, but it's a broad enough truth, a human truth that's broad enough and deep enough that it fits a social mission. So once you have this point of view and this purpose, people know how to benchmark you. And that's the essential point of trust is knowing what to Mm -hmm. benchmark you from. Prior to the global pandemic, in the research, what happened was trust was based primarily on living up to your product promises and commitments. So your product and services, you say you're going to do this, you have to live up to it. And that's how trust was based. In loyalty and retention work, which is a lot of my background from many years ago, trust used to be the end game. For many people in reputation management, trust is the end game. But actually, as you said, trust is the starting point for a meaningful relationship with a brand, with a business in the same way it is for your wife, for your friend, or for whomever. So you start with living up to your products and service promises. And in today's world with COVID, actually living up to your claims of your values as a business, what you say matter to you has been spotlighted and matters more. So the idea of what trust means has grown deeper and wider in the course of the pandemic. So you move from trust, which is the me side of the equation, to enrichment, which is step two, which is make my life better, more inspired, help me through your products and services, You know, make things just feel more exciting. Then step three, which is the pivot point between being a me brand and a we brand is responsibility. And it's funny because when I was writing the book, I suddenly realized, hey, the middle point, step three is the pivot point between being a me brand and a we brand. When the steps emerged from modeling and and the research and the grassroots up, I didn't even realize that the middle point was actually a pivot point. So again, it wasn't curated, it wasn't contrived. It's something that just emerged naturally through modeling and what people told us. So responsibility is about... The typical common things people associate with corporate social responsibility, but, and this is a critical but because it's been highlighted more and more again with the pandemic, responsibility begins with treating your employees well and fairly. And what was happening is because that started being a little bit of a given, the environmental, treating the environment well was starting to rise. And especially with climate change, being highlighted and so many people starting to acknowledge and recognize it in the UNSDG, Sustainable Development Goals, and companies signing on to deliver that. The environment started rising higher and higher as an important factor for people in being responsible. But then when employees' health and employees' safety started going to risk, what happens? Mm-hmm. Treating employees fairly comes again. With social justice issues, What happens? Treating employees equally and with equity starts rising again. So, responsibility to get credit for the good you're doing in the world, you have to first show people you're treating your employees well and fairly. So, we have trust, enrichment, responsibility. And then the we side of the equation is community, connecting people through shared values, bringing them together. And this is not just you know, online communities, which is so easy to resort to, but actually bringing people together in shared community program days and variety of things. It's businesses coming together because they share values and want to save forests. They want to save water. So it's also business associations. So it's multi-levels of community bringing people together because you share values and you share approaches to solving problems, and then contribution is make my world better. And by my association with you, I am contributing to the world. So mm-hmm. you are doing good and you're doing good on my behalf. So it's make me feel bigger than I am when I stand on my own.
2: So, and in your research and in your book, you mention a lot of different companies. And one company that you mentioned is my favorite company of all time. And that's Apple. And Apple is always the top. And it seems from your book, it's a lot of people's favorite company. And I was reading the book and I'm trying to decide, looking at your book, why is it that Apple is my favorite company? And I think I agree with what you said in the book. But also a part of me was, I remember that commercial many years ago, the first Apple commercial, I think, with the briefcases. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just graduating medical school. So I'm going to say 90s. And, the George Orwell commercial, you mean? Yes, yes. For, every, for people out there that don't know, it was just a whole bunch of IBM-like business people in the same suits walking like soldiers. And the Apple message was, be different. And I thought that was cool. And I became a big Apple fan. And there's nothing that's not an Apple product in my house right now. We don't have any Windows, any IBM. And so tell me a little bit about Apple and how were they able to get to that point?
0: The first thing that's important to note is Apple actually is one of the reasons that I spent 5 years after the first study investigating and deconstructing brand leadership from good citizenship and favorite brands. So in that very first study in 2011 that was meant to come up with five easy trends to go talk to companies about for 2012, two interesting findings came about. We asked people which brands they thought would exhibit leadership in the coming year and which brands were good citizens. And within this, we also asked why. And when you look at a lot of these studies that are published, what you often don't know is many of them don't let you say whatever brands you want. Many of them are actually having you rank or rate or discuss a specific set of brands and that they don't talk to you about. You have to have done a lot of this research to know that. So we had a completely open-ended playing field and we had 2,200 brands named as good corporate citizens, which means it was a very fragmented market. It means that the definition of corporate citizenship was pretty vast for people. There wasn't a single (laughs) definition that honed in on 10 great companies. And Apple came up as the number one good corporate citizen which normally I ask you to tell me which brand in 20, at the end mm-hmm. of 2011, you might think, but since you started with Apple, you preempted that question. So it was curious to us that Apple was named as the number one good corporate citizen. We absolutely expected it to be named as the number one leadership brand, but we never expected it to be named as the number one good corporate citizen, especially at the end of 2011, probably I think it was starting in 2010, Apple was in the middle of a bit of a scandal with activists and in the media because they had a chip that was causing some problems and illnesses in China. And there was a whole lot of people on them because of their supply chain and them not taking responsibility for the suppliers they chose. So Apple was by no means anyone we expected to come up in there it didn't even come up in conversation, but it was the number one good corporate citizen. And why it was goes to the Me Too We continuum and goes to your question. So when you asked people why was Apple, why did you say Apple, you know, is number one? It's because Apple transformed the way I communicate with other people across the globe because of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Apple brought joy into my life by bringing me music 24-7. Apple changed so many things in the way we behave, communicate, and just spend our time. That's In people's mind, that made it a good corporate citizen. So, it was a very me proposition. Another brand that was a good corporate citizen that came up in the top three to five was Walmart. And this study was done in the US and the UK. In the UK, there was a comparable brand called Tesco to Walmart that came up. And when you ask people why, because of their pricing policy, I'm afforded a better lifestyle. Again, a me proposition. Mm-hmm. There was no way we expected this. And Ford came up because Ford had been recovering. We are now Great Recession, 2008, end of 2011, Ford turned around. And if Ford can turn around, that means America can turn around. And if America can turn around, that means I can turn around.
2: And Ford didn't take any of the money that the other companies did. So that kind of made them, I can do it on my Mm -hmm. own kind of look at. It was Mm -hmm.
0: that spirit of self-reliance that I can turn my life around. But all these were me propositions. And who would have ever thought of good corporate citizenship as a me proposition? And each of these brands had corporate citizenship initiatives that people didn't know about. So it was sort of mind-boggling to us. So that's one finding. And then the contradictory finding that came up in this study was people were saying they wanted business to step in and reform society and make things in society better because government was unable to do so because politicians were so divided. And if you think back, and we are speaking the day after an election The end of 2011 was another election year, 2012 election. So people then thought there was a huge range of partisanship and that politicians weren't going to solve anything. And so they were saying business faces no opposition in the way a politician does, although what they weren't realizing, and I talk about this in the book, is business does have a bit of an opposition and it has a board it has to to go to and shareholders it has to go to and deliver to. But it's a different type of opposition than being a politician. So business needs to step in and reform society. We proposition. Apple bettered my life. Me proposition. And this is, was the thing that really sort of made us step back and pause and say, what's going on here? This makes no sense. Citizenship mm-hmm. is supposed to be about we. But what we learned is it's about me and we and balancing those things out. And Apple over time has really bettered its performance on the We side. You know, you see Apple doing more and more to deliver on the We side as it delivers on the Me side. And why is Apple your favorite brand? Because it's at step two, it's at enriching your life. Strategically, it just makes you feel better. It inspires every moment of your life. But it has the other steps, it has elements of the other four steps. And so it slides back and forth along that continuum of brand citizenship. It serves you as me and it serves you as we.
2: I'm going to draw some parallels to what I do in healthcare on everything you just said. First of all, what I loved about your model is you said it's from the ground up. And when I teach physicians and other people about communication, patient experience is a big deal right now. We're in medicine right now. We're finally giving the patient a voice before they never had that voice before. And there's very good physicians that are struggling. They're excellent physicians. They're not trusted because they have that look in their eye, or they're just not good at communicating, or they just don't know how to bond to their patients. And we were often taught to look at people who aren't good at something and try to learn from them. And I think that's the exact opposite. And I think you'd agree because that's what you did. And when I speak to groups, I'll say to them, you know, a physician or a nurse or a business leader, an administrator, who walks into the room and everybody loves him or her. And you know that person who, when on their patient satisfaction scores, a doctor gets a 98 percentile and he's awesome. That's the person that you should be looking Mm -hmm. at. Look at her and say, what is it that she's doing that I'm not doing? And I don't think society has really done that, but that's basically what your model was, right? You looked at you found that Apple and Walmart were up there and then you went back and said, why, right? And I think that's a good parallel to what we do and it goes back again to the trust and the leadership. And so there's so many parallels in everyday life and personal and private life. These are conversations that companies are having with their employees.
0: You have to look at great examples, whether you're a business or your person, but you can't necessarily do what they do in the same way they do it. And so the notion of purpose or being, you know, authenticity is a trendy word. And I'll in a moment tell you why I actually am not so fond of the word anymore, but you have to do it in a way that's true to who you are, because if you completely mimic them and that doesn't sit in your center and it doesn't reflect who you are or how you look or what people know as your values, it comes off as insincere and people won't believe it. So you have to take cues and notions from leaders, but then follow through in a way that's true to who you are, make it true to your purpose. So what I like to think of it as is actually, how do you feel comfortable and confident to go out there every day and be your best self?
1: Yep. Excellent.
0: And and to me, whether you're a business or an individual physician working with a patient, that's the true thing. Sit in your center, be grounded in yourself, in your true purpose, and be your best self. Yes, learn from others, but do it in a way that's true to who you
2: are. Agree 100%. And in fact, the word that we use is be genuine.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: And you have to be genuine and you'll see the best people that are able to build rapport have good conversations, create loyalty, whether they're a leader in business or they're a doctor, they're genuine people. And so, yeah, correct. You can't copy somebody, but you can look at them and say, what is it they're doing? You know, wow, this person's being himself. He commented on baseball or he sat down with his patient. He wasn't typing on the computer while the patient was speaking Mm -hmm. and he looked in his eyes. And so, but you're absolutely right. People will identify fakeness, if you Mm -hmm. will. In a heartbeat. And
0: I think that's the problem with authenticity in a social media world. Back in 2007, we had millennials telling us that authenticity in today's world was curated at best and contrived more typically. Mm -hmm. And how they spoke about that had to do with their playlists. And they would talk about how they knew their friends weren't listening to a lot of these things on their playlist and they couldn't figure out why they had certain songs pop up. And then they realized that was because they would make sure that they hit that song. So it would come up to the top. So people wouldn't actually know what was on their playlist. And you have to go back and remember iPods to go back to remember that was 2006, 2007. So authenticity is very much curated on social media. It is your true story, but it's the parts of your story you're choosing to let people know. And with businesses, and I'm sure there's elements of this that relate to physicians, With businesses, telling their authentic story is how they reframe who they are often. And so you use the word genuine, which is a word I debated on using, and I ended up using the word sincere because sincerity is speaking from (laughs) the heart and people know when you speak from the heart. And that's how you tell when someone is, quote unquote, authentic in the truest manner, not in the new social media version of authenticity.
2: Let's switch that over to one of my other favorite topics is leadership. And uh, you have to have conversations. Companies call you in to help you with their branding, their brand citizenship, et cetera. You have to have some difficult conversations with leaders. And maybe I know when I give workshops, you can see the people that have bought into Mm -hmm. this and the people that haven't bought into that. And sometimes they're in the same room. And sometimes the bosses, you know, when I give some big workshops, you can see the doctor In the back with his arms folded, who really doesn't want to listen? And I get some credibility because I'm a physician, and I usually I'm able to use my communication skills to bring them around. But how do those conversations go when you have somebody who's really just not buying into this, and they're asking for help, but not everybody's on board? Is that something that you run into a lot?
0: Everybody not being on board, absolutely. But why you brought in often is because they know there's something wrong. Now, to your point and I think it's indirectly hidden underneath what you're saying is people resist change. People think Mm -hmm. they want change until it means they as an individual have to change. And when you go in and whether it was way back when doing traditional corporate identity to moving now into how you integrate citizenship and, and diversity and inclusion and belongingness, all these things into an organization, which are all elements of your brand, all elements of brand citizenship. It's hard for a lot of people to grasp onto change. So you have to do things not in a way that's what I always call pulling off the white sheet. It's not like, ah, oh, here's the answer. It's more you have to get people to work with material and understand it. And absolutely, your um, listeners can't see this, but I'm smiling because I can think of so many <laughs> client <laughs> engagements where someone in the room really didn't buy in or decided that the business was going in a direction that's different for them. And I have an exercise that I do that has to do with the first 100 days and people confidentially reveal things of what they're going to change in their behavior. And then 100 days later, we send them a reminder to see if they've actually lived up to what their commitment was. And undoubtedly, even in a room of executives, you know, if you even have 10 people that are board level or you know, the C-suite, mm-hmm. undoubtedly one person always has decided the direction the company's moving is not a place they want to go. So yes, it's a difficult conversation. If you were to make it just as simple, this is how you have to behave. But if you get people to interact and come and internalize these things to themselves and start thinking about it, they usually get there. you know, business is run by people. And most people don't wake up saying, I want to be a bad person today. You have to believe that. Most people wake up saying, I want to do good today. I want to get through today in a way that makes me feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of the things they have to balance that directs them. And, you know, many ways your job is to hold their hand and ensure they don't lose their way and that they feel comfortable, as I said before. It's being comfortable and confident to be the best version of yourself, whether you're a person or a business. That's really what being a good brand citizen is about. That's what really, you know, gaining the greatest social and financial value from your brand is about being the best version of who you are.
2: And convincing that person in the room that they should change is often difficult. I do this thing with conflict resolution we do this exercise and we, I have four pillars of conflict resolution, but the fourth one is make them think it's their Mm -hmm. idea. And if you lead them correctly to the water and they'll say, gee, maybe I should have a drink. And I think that's the biggest problem that, you know, in my business, it's usually the patient is unhappy, the medical error, the other things that are a big deal. But if you sit with them, you build that trust and they start to trust you in the end, they'll say, You know, and this brand citizenship thing is really a good thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, yeah, you know, that's really insightful. So I think that's really important to get the person who's least buying into it to get on your side. And I'm sure you've had trouble doing that. And any advice to anybody to get to do that when that happens to them?
0: Yeah. And I think it's probably the same in what you do is that this is a journey. You're not going to step out of the box and do everything right. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, you're probably going to do a lot of things wrong because we're developing new models. And in any moment you're developing a new framework, a new way of doing things, you're going to make mistakes. But the idea is let's commit to doing this. Let's commit to doing this in the best way we can, in the most sincere way we can. Let's also recognize that we can't make everything perfect at once. And I think one of the challenges so many businesses face that is so hard for them is once they do one thing right, activists are in there trying to suss out what they're doing wrong. You can't Mm -hmm. change the business models we've been living with for decades, if not longer, overnight. It's going to take some time. And if they changed everything at once, and made everything all about 100% sustainable supply chains, you know, 100% raising salaries for everybody. You can't do it all at once because you lose your profit. And if you don't have profit, you can't maintain yourself as a business. And that's why it's about balancing. It's a balancing act and how you slowly, gracefully make your way along this pathway. And the thing that's good about the five steps is it gives you small steps so you don't get overwhelmed with this big thing. I have to go live purpose because that's overwhelming, you know, and Mm -hmm. how do you start? And it's about taking small steps, taking step one, committing to doing things better and getting on the pathway. And if you look at the way the five steps span out, it helps companies sort of categorize How to make changes, where they can make changes, where they can do things better, what's easier to do, what's harder, what's longer. But you have to be committed for the long haul and not just do a check the box exercise and then go out there and say, we're great, we've just done this. It's about committing to changing behavior over time for the long run and aligning yourself and keeping yourself in balance. Even us as individuals, you know, how many people say they're going on a diet and after you know, two days, stop. It's about aligning with your commitments and following through on them. You have to keep yourself in check all the time. So you have to also have measurable benchmarks. You know, in business, that's what is not measured doesn't happen. So you need to create a new set of benchmarks, a new set of performance management to match this up, which is why ESG on the investment side and how investment managers evaluate companies from environment, social and governance now is going to help change the way businesses
2: behave. Does it be their bottom line. With patient experience, it was always considered a soft thing to have. It's kind of nice. But hospital administrators, 90% of them said it was an important thing, but they weren't doing anything Mm -hmm. about it. And then Obamacare came along and Medicaid and Medicare started saying, you know what, if you have a poor patient experience score, I'm going to pay you less. All of a sudden, (laughs) now patient experience is a big deal. And so that's why people hire me now to say, you know, you need to help me with the doctors and the communication because our patient experience scores need to get better. For my audience, this is just audio, so you can't see Ann's face. But one of the things that I noticed about you when we're speaking, which I think really helps when you're doing your workshops and your brand citizenship to companies, it really helps when someone's passionate about this. And you can see my face when I talk about what I'm doing. People go, wow, you just light up. Because this communication training and this patient experience stuff and the stuff that I do is, and I'm training human resource people now. I think the guy who's standing in the back with his arms folded sees the excitement on your face. And I can tell from your face that you really believe in this and you think this is really cool. And I'm just going to make a commentary here that I believe that helps because when someone's up there going through the motions, it's like a teacher in elementary school, right? If they're just. Here's the problem list. But if you're up there going, hey, this is the coolest thing ever, the students really respond to that. So I can see your face when you talk about it. You love this so much. So that's really cool. I just want to tell everybody that.
0: One thing to build on that is that my intent in writing the book was actually to provoke more meaningful discussion and spotlight and accelerate the changes that were happening. And the book was published in 2017, the end of 2017. And then the research started in 2011, and now you see how this stuff is out there and important for businesses, and it's essential with the global pandemic that so many of these principles are lived up to. So, I mean, people would say to me after I published the book, why aren't you working more and more with social enterprises? And I do work with some social enterprises, but the reason my focus is corporate is because if a corporation changes something, the impact it can have because of the scale is huge impact it can have on people and how they behave, you know, on supply chains in the developing world. It's huge. That's important. Social enterprise is essential also, but we can't just assume we can replace business with social enterprise. We need to bring the two of those things closer together and have each of them embrace principles of the other.
2: That's what I thought was so cool about your book. I mean, I'm reading your book and I'm going companies are having conversations with me. This is what this is. And I thought it was the really coolest thing. And that's why I thought this podcast is perfect. One final question that I ask everybody, that's a very difficult question. So get ready. I don't know if I put this on your list. What is the most difficult conversation that you have on a regular basis? We don't have to get too specific, but you know, for doctors, it's telling somebody that their child died or that they have cancer, et cetera. And what you do, what do you think is the most difficult conversation?
0: I wouldn't say it's difficult in the sense of getting people to believe you. It's difficult in the sense Mm -hmm. of finding the way of approaching it and telling the story. But, you know, you're typically not brought in because a company is doing great. You do have some amazing companies that do call you because they want to keep getting better Mm -hmm. and better. And I love those people. But you also (laughs) love going in there and watching transformation happen. And to me, that's what excites me and finding the right steps to create transformation. But to get to that, you have to make people aware of the things they're doing wrong. And way back when I worked in B2B banking and I started realizing what a lot of my job at the time I was in strategic planning and research and retention and satisfaction, all this stuff. And it's B2B banking, you know, This is big money Mm -hmm. stuff and consume, not to undermine consumer banking, but, you know, having conversations to tell them you're doing the wrong products and services is really hard. And what I realized is my job was to dispel corporate myths. And most anecdotal wisdom that runs across an organization is rooted in some truth. And you have to surface Mm -hmm. that truth and show why it's no longer true.
2: And there's the great advice right there.
0: The first thing you do when you're doing management interviews or when you're talking in a briefing meeting, whatever it is, where you're getting your bit of insight. And I'm sure you do this, too, with people, with individuals. What are the sacred cows? Because if you Mm. don't identify the sacred cows, you don't know how to communicate to maneuver around those landmines. Because usually those sacred cows need to be dispelled. They're usually corporate mythology or based on anecdotal wisdom. And that's what's holding you back. And, you know, fear is what prevents us from moving forward. Someone once said to me, fear is false evidence appearing real. And I remind myself of that all the time. So as you step on this pathway of doing good, you have to remember that maybe making a mistake Is not bad. And that's your biggest fear factor, usually.
2: I love that's fantastic advice and a great way to finish. And this has been amazing. I this has been great. Again, the name of her book is Do Good. It's available on Amazon and I'm sure everywhere else. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
0: Well, my Twitter is at AnnBT. And then my easy to remember email address is ABT, so Ann Bar Thompson at 164th, and it's the fraction spelled out, which may not be the easiest thing for people.com. It's dot com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I am on Facebook, but I don't use it really anymore. So there's multiple ways of getting at me and my website's They all have a way to
2: contact me. We will put all of that on our show notes. So you don't have to remember that if you're listening in the car. I'll write it down. We'll have it all in the show notes and you'll be able to go ahead and click on it. This podcast is available on just about every podcast format. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to your favorite podcast format and hit subscribe and download all the previous episodes. If you want to find out more about the Orsini Way, please go to theorsiniway.com. And you could also get the podcast episodes from there, too. And thank you. This was a lot of fun. And it's really great to get to know you. And I hope that we can talk soon
1: again. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.